The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a boy growing up, we had one pastor for 16 years. Uh, He had grown up in the Great Depression and had not had opportunity to go to college and seminary. So he was an approved supply, a local pastor. He was called back in those days. I never pastored big churches. The little church where I grew up was as big a church as he ever pastored. We had about 75 in Sunday school every Sunday and about 100 people in worship. Now, I heard him preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for 16 years. And I discovered there was an expression that he used over and over as we live and dwell in the world and move and live and have our being. What does that mean? What does that mean? Um, As I got older and finally felt called to be a minister myself, I think it was a way of getting back to his notes and seeing what the next point was. (laughs) As we live and dwell in the world and move and live and have our being. And then suddenly, when I was in high school, this man retired, whom we had called... Brother Wallace, all those years. And the bishop sent us a seminary student. This small church got a person who was in his last year at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University, going to the seminary five days a week and being at the church on Saturday and Sunday until he graduated and could become a full-time pastor to us. And so the three years that I heard him, I noticed that every Sunday he began his sermon with the words that end this psalm. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. Now, these words are the very end of a poem. The person who wrote these words was not preaching. He was writing poetry. Poetry that became a hymn in Judaism. And all the verses leading to this very last one, he is placing on the altar of the Lord, if you would. It is his offering. Some can paint. Some can sing. Some can teach. Some can write poetry. And this had written a poem and was now asking May these words of my mouth, these meditations of my heart, be acceptable to you. Oh, I am who I am, my rock, my redeemer. So let's see what his words are. Number one, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Here is a poet who is saying that if you want to know the maker better, take a good look at what the maker has made. 
Gail and I were talking this weekend about next year's vacation, some places we would like to go and things we would like to see, and remembering all these many years we've been married in places we've already been. Beautiful, wonderful places. We have seen our magnificent Rocky Mountains in Colorado, but we've also seen the Alps. We were remembering taking a little cog railway up to Muren in Switzerland. It's one of the most beautiful spots on the planet as far as we are concerned. Uh, so steep that you have to ride this little cog railway up to the small hotel at the top. But as you walk just a few feet from the hotel, you're looking down into a, a valley, if you would, that just seems to go almost straight down, almost forever. And then a mountain rises right up against the one where you're standing, and it's the Jungfrau. It is magnificent. It is truly magnificent. We've been to Zermatt several times, and we've seen the Matterhorn. We've seen Mont Blanc and other outstandingly beautiful places. We've been to Norway. We've seen the deep, deep fjords and the mountains rising out of the sea. Certainly, when we see these beautiful places, we who are people of God and know ourselves to be people of God, would see the handiwork of God. But what about those places that others deem not so beautiful? Dr. Robert Gorell recently was writing in his column to Church of the Servant, United Methodist, in Oklahoma City, reminding them of Kathleen Norris's book called Dakotas, A Spiritual Geography. Is that an unusual title? A spiritual geography, she wrote. Kathleen Norris grew up in the Dakotas and then went away east to, to school. She loved all those people in the east. I mean, that there were lots of people and lots of opportunities, lots of things to do. But it is often the case there was sickness and death back in the Dakotas that brought her home again. One of her friends came out to see her, be sure she was doing all right. And when she saw the western part of North and South Dakota, she said, my Lord, this is the Cappadocia of North America. Cappadocia, that word ring a bell with you? Well, it would with theology students. You see, in the fourth century, just about 300 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were certain monks who decided that the Roman Empire was corrupting them. Uh, too much noise, too much excitement, too much business being done that they needed to retreat into the desert. And they went into the Cappadocian Desert in northernmost Africa, where there are scorpions and horned toads, to behold the beauty of God. And Kathleen Norris decided to stay in the Dakotas and see if she could see the beauty of God in the Cappadocia of North America. Number two, this verse about the law of the Lord. Did you notice that? I think that's not a good translation. I know there were 34 outstanding scholars who spent 17 years translating the new Revised Standard Version of the Bible for us, and they still translated the word for Torah as law. And so I looked in the Tanakh this week. This is the most recent translation endorsed by the Reform rabbis in the United States. That would be Rabbi Charles Sherman and others. And they say the teachings of the Lord. Torah doesn't mean law. It means teachings. It means instructions. The instructions of the Lord, perfect, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. 
The Dark Knight has been one of the biggest grossing movies of all time. It's the most recent story of Batman and Robin and the Joker, you know. But the thing that's made this one sell so big time is that Heath Ledger, of course, died a few weeks after it was completed. He played the Joker in this one, and this one is the darkest one so far. Heath Ledger, a method actor. The director of the film in one of the reviews I read said, Heath got fascinated with puppets, with marionettes, with how their jaws worked, with how they were made up. And he decided that somehow he was going to mimic them. So to play his role as the Joker, he wore a fright wig. He put on gobs of white makeup on his face, uh, exaggerated black circles around his eyes, uh, too much scarlet lipstick on his mouth, and played one of the meanest, cruelest terrorists of all. I read six different reviews and six different publications, from religious ones to almost entirely secular ones, if you would, to see what others were saying about the dark night. One of them said, Notice the line spoken by Michael Caine's character. He said, Some people are evil to get more money. Some people are evil to gain more power. And some people just like to make the world burn. In one of the religious publications, a reviewer said, We are learning more about terrorists. Terrorists are people who have decided that innocent people can very well be sacrificed in order to advance a certain political cause. We don't understand that, don't really understand that, but we understand even less those people who have no cause and are willing to sacrifice innocent people. The New Yorker reviewer and the Wall Street Journal reviewer, two different people entirely, had a similar line in their reviews. Each said... This young man who would die just weeks later of an overdose of drugs stared too long into the abyss. Abyss, I know that word. This is a theological word as well. I looked it up in my big dictionary and it says, A pit with no bottom. A bottomless pit. You look down, and the farther you look, the darker and darker it gets. Now, that's not where you and I are. That is not where we are. We believe that God has taught us a better way. And that the teachings of God revive the heart, enlighten one's life. Number three. Notice other words used here. It talks about the decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Sure teachings of the Lord. We use the expression, well, this is not brain surgery or this is not rocket science. This poet is saying, are God's teachings really so difficult for you? What part of this do you not get? Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not 
steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet anything that belongs to one's neighbor. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What part of that did you not understand? See, this poet says this isn't rocket science. This isn't brain surgery. This is pretty simple stuff here. It's a matter of evil or good, good or evil. One of my favorite columnists in the Tulsa world is Paul Greenberg. Paul doesn't live here in Tulsa, but his column is syndicated into the Tulsa world. Paul Greenberg was writing back in July about the events of 1957, 58, 50 and 51 years ago. Some of you will remember 1957, 58. The civil rights movement was in its infancy at that point. Well, there'd been people pushing for civil rights for a long time, but there was really a, a fermenting spirit occurring in 57, 58. And one of those one of those flashpoints, if you would, was Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, the doctrine supposedly was separate but equal. White kids in one school, black kids in another school, but all the schools are equal. And any of us who lived in those segregated communities and went to those segregated schools knew that they weren't equal at all. Not even close to being equal. Some black children wanted to go to high school downtown Little Rock. Orville Falbus was the governor. And he made a dramatic stand at the front doors of Central High School there in Little Rock and said, you're not coming in here and defied the federal marshals for a time and so on. And because of his stand the next year, he was reelected to a third term as governor of Arkansas. Paul Greenberg was quoting a reporter who was fresh out of journalism school, had just graduated college, had gone to work for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, who interviewed Orville Faubus in 1958 and told Paul Greenberg, Orville Faubus said, I am not a racist. I'm too smart to be a racist. I was the most liberal governor in the state. And the young reporter said, then why did you do what you did in 1957? And he said, to win in 1958. And Paul Greenberg said, that's worse than ever. To know what's right and not do it. To know what's wrong and to do it anyway, just to perpetuate one's own place and time. These teachings of the Lord are simple, simple. John Wesley said 300 years ago, let me make this easy for you. Do no harm. Do whatever good you can and stay in love with the Lord. Number four. The fourth thing is about the commandments of the Lord. More about God's teachings, what he's asked us to do. And listen to these wonderful words. His commandments are clear. They are pure. They are true. Sweeter than honey. Drippings of a honeycomb. You have to remember that these ancient poets are writing into a culture that had such a sameness of diet. They rarely could afford to kill their little animals to eat them because they needed more milk. They needed cheese. It was so rare that they had animal flesh at all that you have the poets writing about the marrow in their bones are so sweet and wonderful. A little bit of fat in the diet. 
And they didn't have sugar cane fields, and they didn't have sugar beets. The main source of sugar and sweetness in their lives was finding a swarm of wild bees. When I was a boy growing up in the oil field, these men that serviced all those little oil and gas wells around us would come excitedly to say they had found a swarm of bees in a tree, and my dad would come in and get a, a, a big dish pan and, and huge spoons and things, and they would rush down to that tree to get that honey. We didn't have that many sweet things in our lives. And this poet says, guess what? The commandments of the Lord are like that. They're so sweet and wonderful. Not something to be afraid of, not something to run from. This is what will lift you out of the abyss. This is what will lift you out of a world of darkness. This will enlighten you, encourage you, inspire you, enable you. And then when you quit doing harmful things and start doing good things and staying in love with the Lord, all kinds of good things happen. Helen Lescheid has written about being a nurse in an assisted living facility. Seventeen years she worked in this one facility. And she said to some people, said, how can you go there every day? These are older people. They're needing a lot of special care now. And eventually they all die. And she said, well, I, I could just write books about the people I met there. How wonderful they were. So let me tell you about one, Mrs. Reimer. She said, I met Mrs. Reimer when she was 90 years old. She had become diabetic, and so part of one of her legs had to be removed, and then a part of her other leg had to be removed. And I remember how painstakingly the people were who made prosthetics for her, and how she was helped up onto those new prosthetics for the first time. And what a smile on her face when she said, Can you believe I'm 90 years old and I'm learning to walk? Again, And every morning, she said, we'd go in to start helping her with these prosthetics. She was ready. She was ready. Just help me up, she said. I'm ready. She said she loved good biography. You could walk in her room and she'd be reading the latest great biography that someone had recommended to her. She loved jigsaw puzzles. Said she had always had one going on a the table there. And she'd work at it a little while and then do something else and come back to it until she got it finished. And she was ready for a new jigsaw puzzle. And she loved to crochet. Her eyesight wasn't what it had been at one time. But one day, Helen says, I went into her room and she was crocheting on this tiny little piece. I said, what are you making? And she said, a Christmas tree ornament. You know our big bazaar we have every year just before Christmas. If I make one of these every day, we'll have almost 400 to sell next December. And she made one every day, Helen said. Here was a woman who lived so wonderfully well, who did no harm, who did all the good she could, who stayed in love with the Lord. Last night I'd concentrated as hard as I knew how, trying to remember the sermon I'd finished writing back on Friday. And then I turned on the football game. Uh, OU was playing Washington, of course. And right in the middle of that ball game, suddenly the guy who's announcing from the booth said to one of the cameramen, would you pull in a little closer on Bob Stoops' visor that he wears all the time? I saw something shining on that visor, and the cameraman pulled in. And you could see this white visor that Stoops was wearing, and with a big, you know, crimson OU right in the front. But just to the right of it, there was a gold pin. And then he said, 
I've heard about that gold pen. Not from Bob Stoops. Somebody else told me about that gold pen. But last year, when Oklahoma won the Big 12 championship again, uh, Bob Stoops got a call that there was a little boy in a cancer treatment unit in Norman who was a big-time OU fan who would be helped so much during his chemotherapy if there was any chance he could meet Bob Stoops. And a few days later, Stoops walked through the door into this kid's room. A nurse said he was beside himself. He recognized him immediately. Coach Stoops had brought him a football. And this little fellow started asking about different players. He knew their names. He knew their numbers. And Bob Stoops said to him, Would you like to meet a couple of them? Next time I come, I'll bring two. And the next time he came, a few days later, he brought two of the OU players. And he was back in a couple of weeks and brought two more. And he was back again. And suddenly another patient and another and another. All of these children battling cancer. And finally, after all these months of regular visits, another season was beginning. And one of the nurses who works at the hospital said to Bob Stoops, I I think you've earned the right to one of our pins, a little pin for this particular oncological unit at the hospital. And he pinned it onto his visor and said, if the camera ever gets close enough that you can see my little gold pin, know that wherever we're playing, I'm rooting for you. One little ten-year-old who's lost all his hair because of chemo and is fighting the battle of his life said, you know, if it worked for cancer, this would be the best 